0: welcome to a podcast brought to you by the american academy of orthopedic manual physical therapists our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice education and research and we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts
1: Before we get started, I want to let you know that this interview and a handful of forthcoming interviews were recorded in Reno, Nevada, at our annual 2018 AOMP conference, which is why the sound quality will be a bit different than usual. If you'd like to learn more about our conferences, you can go to our website www.aaompt.org and check out the conference tab. There, you will learn that our forthcoming 2019 conference will be held in Orlando, Florida, from October 23rd to the 27th. Now, let's get to the interview. Welcome to another episode of a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. My name is Steve Schaefer, and I'm here today with Dr. Michelle Finnegan. Dr. Finnegan specializes in treating patients with orofacial pain, chronic pain, and hypermobility. She's a senior instructor for the Dry Needling course series for mild pain seminars, a co editor of the third edition of the Travel and Simons Trigger Point Manual and a regular contributing co-author for a quarterly review on myofascial pain literature for the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapies. She also serves as a manuscript reviewer for several journals and is an active volunteer for the Federation of State Boards of Physical Therapy. Dr. Finnegan, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Good morning.
1: How are you doing today? I'm doing well. She says she's doing well. I will point out that we are on the West Coast at the conference, and we are both East Coast folks. Uh so morning is a bit rough but that's okay. One other thing I'd like to point out about your background that I noticed when I was reading about you is that you are a former ballet dancer. I am. And would you care to state why that might be relevant to the topic we're going to talk about today?
0: Yeah, so I did used to do ballet but I I did not continue through high school. Um I stopped in 8th grade but it's always been something that I've just kind of enjoyed even though I've not even practiced since high school. But I feel like that's given me a little bit of an understanding with treating people with EDS and hypermobility just because of my background and stuff. I'm also a bit on the hypermobile side as well, so I feel like I'm able to, I don't want to say identify with these patients, but kind of empathize and understand where they're coming from a little bit more just because of my background.
1: So, this would be a good time to bring in the title of the presentation that you have here at AOMP this year, which is Ehlers Danlos Syndrome, EDS. Now what? Changing their pain game. So this, of course, is why it's relevant to discuss that in the past you've participated in ballet and why currently you would be interested in things like hypermobility disorders. Yes. With that being a brief intro, can you please give us a an overview of how hypermobility disorders relate to musculoskeletal practice?
0: Well, first of all, I guess there's uh, several different types of hypermobility syndromes. And the one that me and my colleague are going to be presenting on here at the conference is related to the hypermobile type, which is probably the most common of all of the types, but it's also the most challenging to diagnose. I think when people think of EDS, they think of more the classical type EDS with the very stretchy skin and they can do all the crazy party tricks and all of that. But there's a lot of variations, and if you're not able to recognize the hypermobile type, it can be quite challenging to treat and manage these patients. So typically, um, because these patients present with um, a high percentage of musculoskeletal complaints, we're likely to be seeing these people before they're even diagnosed. Frequently, they can be kids who are involved with sports and they have a lot of injuries, um, maybe some dislocations. And if we're not able to kind of piece some of this information together, they can go for years mismanaged. So I think that's how it's very important, how it can relate to us musculoskeletal practice. and. Also being aware of the other systems that are very much involved with this condition, because if you think about it, you know, the patient or the patient's parent, if they're a kid, they may not think about the cardiovascular component. You know, they'll go to a cardiologist and they'll go to a dermatologist for other things and, you know, GI issue for some of those symptoms. And no provider is really going to be aware of kind of putting it all together like we have the chance to, because we tend to spend more time with our patients, a lot more time with history taking, medical screening, et cetera. And I think we have the ability to be a really good first-line defense to help better manage these patients and treat them.
1: Building off that point, how often are you receiving patients into your clinic that have already been diagnosed with these conditions? Versus how often are you the individual that's seeing them and then identifying that they likely have a hypermobility syndrome and then you're contacting, for example, the physician, the cardiologist, the whoever to bring them into the fold?
0: That's a, that's a good question. I would say I'm in a little bit of a unique situation in the area that I live and work in just outside of DC. I would say frequently I'm already seeing the patients who've been diagnosed with EDS only because we have um, very close to us one of like the world's most renowned geneticists dealing with EDS, and that's uh, Dr. Claire Frankomano. Um, and she's up in Baltimore. So she tends to see these patients and kind of refer out to the area and stuff. So most of the time, I'm already seeing a patient with the diagnosis, but in their history, they all have a common thread of, you know, this all started years ago. Um, I went to all these different providers. Nobody was ever able to put the pieces together. I'd say if anything, a provider that's more likely to catch it is maybe a rheumatologist if they went to one, but you know, if they're going to a chronic pain clinic, et cetera, it's a bit of a challenge. I have seen a few who I've had to make the referral to who have been like older teenagers, young adults, et cetera. But I also do that with caution depending on things because, you know, if things are relatively stable, they may not need the diagnosis if they're already being well-managed.
1: So you're an expert when it comes to hands-on orthopedic manual physical therapy. And I know that oftentimes physical therapists are hesitant to work with this patient population for a whole host of reasons. Uh, Part of what you mentioned earlier, for example, is that they, tend to have joint dislocations. Mm -hmm. So how often are you using OMPT with this patient population? And if you're using it, what are you doing in terms of your techniques?
0: I do do a lot of manual therapy with this population. I do think you need to be a little bit more cautious and judicious with your techniques because they are hypermobile. They're also on the more sensitive side of things. So you have to be very careful with your contacts. I mean, thinking along the lines of you know, allodynia, central sensitization, even those things, their system can easily be set off. Things that I won't do with them, you know, obviously no high velocity, etc. Even if there's an area that's stiffer than another, I just find that your lower level manual therapy techniques work just fine. I do do a lot of soft tissue stuff. Granted, I am biased because I, you know, am involved with teaching the dry needling, but I do find that that has been very effective for several patients because you can get into the muscles and treat things, and then it helps reduce their pain. So then that way they can start to do some like very low-level exercise and stuff like that. So I do think it's important with this population.
1: I agree 100%. And though I'm not a dry needler, you basically described how I treat this patient population as well. And I've had success with that approach. Uh, and it's ranged from, going back to the prior question, it's ranged from me finding the patient who has the chronic pain and they've seen 15 people and no one's diagnosed them. And then I help them get the diagnosis all the way over to the other end of the spectrum, which of course is they come in with a diagnosis and no one else wants to see them. Mm-hmm. You know, So then the person at the front desk knows to give me that individual because I like to see all the different diagnoses. Now, in terms of labeling them, one thing that just, one example that popped in my head is, one time it was my, my patient's daughter was actually being investigated for child abuse because of the granddaughter's dislocation, easy bruising, poor healing, so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. which can be associated with this patient population. Uh, And she had all the classic signs that you'd expect from EDS, but nobody literally in 20 years had put all the the variables together. And I'll never forget this. When I I told her that I thought she had this genetic uh, hypermobility syndrome, she just looked at me and said, so I'm not crazy? She was so used to people telling her things like, it's all in your head.
0: That's very common. It's It's very common in that population.
1: Unfortunately, way too common.
0: And I would say even because, especially with the hypermobile type of EDS, there's no genetic marker like all the others. It's even harder to put the pieces together because it literally goes off of that patient's history and then digging into the family history and medical history and all of that stuff. Um, and then checking the boxes with the new criteria that have been put together.
1: That is exactly (laughs) the approach I've used to find uh, the right diagnosis for these folks. So can you give our audience some examples, uh, maybe generalized or more specific, of the type of treatment outcomes that you've been getting with this type of patient?
0: Yeah, the treatment outcomes for this population, you know, I think they, like with any patient, population, they can vary. I feel like for at least me personally, this has been a little bit more of a wide variety. I've had some really great success stories. And then I've also struggled with a lot of these patients as well. And those that I've struggled with more, I feel like they have a lot more of the non-musculoskeletal stuff that's also driving them. So other things that these patients can frequently have are autonomic issues, cardiovascular issues, neurological issues. And especially if you have those that are much more dominant, it's a lot harder to manage because there's a different medical aspect that needs attention that even for someone with experience in that area can still be a challenge. The other struggle I've had with this population is that many of them identify with their diagnosis. So they're no longer, you know, Susie, with EDS. It's, they're an EDSer. And they kind of take on the, the signs and symptoms of everything associated with that condition. And they just want to kind of blend it and identify with the rest of the group. Um, and I think if they're very much in that mentality, it's a lot harder to treat because they can't separate themselves and see that they can get better because they see everybody else struggling. Those who are less identifying with their diagnosis in that sense and don't let it drive them, I do find that they do a lot better and they can at least have a decent quality of life. This is not a condition where you're just going to see them for maybe even eight to 12 weeks and they're going to be good. You're going to kind of see them on and off over, you know, maybe many years, but for periods of time, almost like on a, an, at a maintenance level just to kind of keep their activity and function and impairments, you know, at a place where they can keep going.
1: That was a perfect segue into the next question I want to ask you, which is about length of care. And, you know, I want to ask that because, you know, I've had the same experience with the patient population and, you know, sometimes you have your more quick successes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I find that I've spent months and months and months. And obviously in the United States, that can be Difficult because of the way our insurance system, for example, is set up. Correct. Um, people can have very limited health benefits, so on and so forth. And, you know, sometimes I feel like the patient's complicated medical history, et cetera, gets in the way of making them better. And sometimes I feel it's just the regulatory system because folks can't afford to pay out of pocket for services for an indefinite length of time.
0: Correct. I agree.
1: So let's go back a little ways here and maybe go off on a slight tangent. And feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on going here. But I think part of what you were alluding to a minute ago is that some of these folks, uh, specifically common in the EDS population, uh, they can also have a lot of cardiovascular involvement, not just in the sense of aneurysms, which might be what gets the most attention, but also many of them have POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Yes, I agree. Uh, What's your experience with POTS?
0: It is a challenge to treat from a medical perspective, There's a few physicians in the area who are using a cocktail of medications that does seem to help keep things in check to a certain extent. And then they obviously have to manage fluid and salt intake because if they drink too much fluid, it can alter their salt and affect their POTS as well and make it worse. And I find that if their POTS isn't well managed, whatever I want to do with the patient kind of is greatly affected by it, you know, and if they're having, you know, some really bad symptoms or like a period of time where it's not being well managed, I'm just better off not seeing them in the clinic because their body is just dealing with too much and they're just not going to respond to any type of, you know, physical therapy based
1: treatments. So this is of course a little bit off topic uh, and I'm not prepared to go there fully, but I'm currently working on a POTS project, which is one of the many reasons why I have fun with this patient population And I suspect that at some point in the not-so-distant future, we'll have a much better approach to treating POTS. But I'm I'm not confident enough to go fully down that road right now. Uh, But we'll we'll chat more about that. Sounds good. So in that regard, uh, one of the things that I don't think we have much of is evidence for physical therapy interventions with folks that have any of this wide spectrum of hypermobility syndromes. Can Can you talk about that for a minute?
0: I agree 100%. There's not a lot of literature related to EDS in general. And what you do find, it's more in the medical journals, just the multi-system involvement, et cetera, Um, which is good because at least now it's getting recognized that it's not a benign problem. And I think there's still that little bit of an identity crisis with the condition that people think hypermobility, they think benign, there's no issues. I think the evidence for the treatment will eventually follow, but I think it's going to be a while because there is there's really not much. And so you basically have to pull from your background in orthopedic manual therapy of like what, you know, indications, contraindications, and just kind of piecemeal it together for this population and, you know, almost do it on a much smaller scale. You know, you can't be too aggressive with the treatments. You can't do too much. It's almost like baby steps with things and really starting at a very low level and going in a very graded fashion. But if you are looking for evidence for it, I mean, there's really, and you can do a PubMed search, there's not much. I think there was maybe one article that looked at doing some dry needling for a patient with EDS, and that was, it was not a very well-written paper. Um, so I can't even say that you can extrapolate anything from that.
1: So we're, we're not going to find any randomized control trials to compare physical therapy and whatever other control group in terms of outcomes with EDS. Yeah.
0: I don't even know if that would be possible because to control for the patients, they're so variable within their own diagnosis that it would be interesting to see. But I think that would greatly affect any outcomes as well.
1: That is an excellent point. And part of the point of that particular question uh, is that it brings us to part of the wording from the description for the breakout session that you're going to be teaching here at AOMP this year. Mm-hmm. And that is in the description, you specifically use the wording of the fact that you blend evidence, expertise, and clinical reasoning when approaching this patient population. Can you speak for a minute about how you do that and what your thought process is?
0: So, yeah, so with blending the evidence and expertise and clinical reasoning, I, basically because there's no real good evidence out there for treating this population. You're kind, you have to use a lot of your clinical reasoning and just understanding of this population, how do they, they present medically, understanding what they are and aren't capable of doing, and then kind of pulling in what your training is in manual therapy, whether it's you know muscle energy, strain, counter strain, joint mobilization, any variation of that, et cetera, and just kind of tailoring it to the patient. And I know that sounds kind of typical for most patients anyway. Well, no two patients with shoulder pain are the same. But I still feel like there's a little bit of a more similar thread with, you know, 10 patients with shoulder pain versus 10 patients with EDS because they're much more individualized in the sense that you can have 10 patients with EDS and one can have a much stronger autonomic component than another. Another one may have a more strong, you know, GI issue problem related to constipation, diarrhea, et cetera. And another one can have more neurological, all with some musculoskeletal stuff that varies as well. So I feel like even what you think you could do with one patient may not work as well for another. And then compound that with um, the psychosocial issues that are typically very common in this population, high issues of anxiety and stuff like that, kinesophobia. And many times these people are, you know, they're told there's nothing wrong with you. I don't, you know, go to the psychiatrist and, you know, that just adds fuel to everything that they're experiencing. And I think enables that catastrophization to be even more extreme. So it is a very unique approach when it comes to treating them. And just it's, I I don't want to say trial and error, but there is, it is a little bit of trial and error with that clinical reasoning process. And for me personally, I find that going in small doses and in a very graded fashion tends to work better. So you can kind of tease through what may or may not be working.
1: It sounds precisely how I approach this patient population as well. And of course, from an orthopedic manual physical therapy standpoint, which is obviously a a large theme within AOM, you're basically describing comparable sign. You know, you're taking all this knowledge that you have, all these skills that you have, you're dosing them appropriately for the patient, and then you're going to wait and see what works. And if you get good responses from dry needling, let's use more of that. If you get no response or a bad response, let's try something else. And then of course, the end result of this is that as experts, we're trying to navigate our way through. and find a plan of care that works for this particular patient. Yeah. Perhaps the, the one difference there is, I think it's easier, for example, with a new grad to experiment on shoulder pain, you know, do this joint mode, try this exercise, needle this trigger point. I find with this patient population, because they are sufficiently complex and variable, yeah. that it takes that more advanced clinician to dive in there and at least reasonably confidently move forward in a safe fashion.
0: I agree. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, and I've had several patients who've been to some moderately experienced therapists and they still just struggle. They're like, you know, I could get to a certain point and then they just, the therapist pushes me or, you know, wants to do this. And I'm like, I know that's just not going to work, you know, and some of it may be fear of the patient, but I think as therapists, we have to be much more aware of kind of meeting that patient where they're at and working a little bit more on building that trust and This is a group that I think very much so would benefit more from even the pain neuroscience education and really understanding that their anxiety and their fears can feed into this even more. But if they're not ready to hear it, it, you know what I mean? It's not going to work.
1: That statement makes me think of a patient that I treated up in Massachusetts who basically had been told her whole life that she was odd and different and weird. You know, don't do that. Don't move that way. And as a result, she had tightened up and everything in her evaluation told me that I had to use manual therapy and stretching and get her moving again. And, you know, she literally responded by getting teary, you know, saying thank you and said, that's what I've been telling people for years and no one will let me do it. You know, so it was just, I guess the first part there was I treated her psychological and emotional variables by identifying something that she inherently knew to be true. And it took us a while, you know, for the statements we made earlier, I think I worked with her for four, four and a half months, just in the initial episode of care, but she left mostly better, moving better, less pain, more functional back to work. And you know, it's a really gratifying thing to see.
0: It is. When you have something like that, you really feel like your skills and your training have, you know, paid off to help someone who can be very challenging.
1: Well, Dr. Finnegan, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it thoroughly in an attempt to end things on a positive note and how we can move forward. Is there any advice that you can provide for therapists or I suppose even non-therapists who would like to start managing patients that have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome?
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I think um, there is information out there. There is the Ehlers-Danlos website, the EDNF or Ehlers-Danlos National Foundation, um, that they can look up. And there's a lot of great resources there for clinicians as well as patients. I believe there's usually an annual conference. If it's not annual, it's biannual on EDS as well. And I think that is posted on there also. So that's a great way to get an understanding of some of the other different syndromes and systems that can be involved, kind of network and meet with other providers who are treating this population, as well as meet some of the patients who are going through this. PubMed has been a great resource for me, you know, going on PubMed and searching for you know, hypermobile type EDS and see what articles pop up. There's some really good articles that have been published, many of which are open access, and they kind of go through the multi-system involvement. And so that really kind of helps give you a more clear picture of how they can present it, you know, within their variability. I found that's been very useful for me because when I first started treating them, it's like, some of their other issues made sense, but I didn't really quite know why because I wasn't as familiar with the literature. And then going back, actually, when I presented to the EDS group in DC, just going through and finding some of the research, it's like, oh, okay, this really does make sense with everything that I've been seeing and why they present certain ways. So I think that's a really great resource. And even if the article is not open access, frequently, I will just email the authors because their information is there. And Yeah, I've had a decent success rate with getting stuff. Or you find someone at a university, see if they can access the articles. But I think those are two great resources. There are, I believe, there are a couple books that have been published that you can find on Amazon related to hypermobility and stuff as well, which some of them are a little bit more basically written for patients, but they're still a really good resource, I think, so you can have a better understanding of where they're coming
1: from. Well, that is excellent. And uh, I suppose the, the logical follow up from that is, do you have any projects on EDS that you're working on or is this just a clinical endeavor for you?
0: Um, I am not doing any research in this now um, or I don't have any publications. This is just something that I think I've kind of grown into over the years just with working with the chronic pain population in you know the region that I'm in. It's just kind of happened and that's kind of where I've been with it.
1: So if I may interpret that for our audience, um, I'm looking forward to the future projects you'll work on. I'm I'm uh, excited, and I think you're going to be the perfect person to make sure that in the future, we have the evidence that is currently lacking. So sorry about that, but I just uh, threw you under the bus.
0: Well, are you saying that you have something that we could work on together? Then I'm happy to help. <laughs>
1: um, honestly, currently, I don't. I should. Uh, like you, I have about 1,312 things on my to-do list, but this is one of them that, you know, especially because I've gotten decent results clinically for years with this patient population, and I don't see many other people doing that. And, you know, with the level of suffering that I see out there from a relatively large number of people, despite the fact that, you know, we could, of course, call this a a rare condition, air quotes there wrong, rare. I I do think that our profession, and especially people such as yourself and myself, meaning, you know, orthopedic manual therapy experts who are getting results, I think we should step up and uh, work on projects that can help take this patient population and move them from what sometimes seems to be the land of confusion and how we treat them and then pull them into an area where we can hopefully consistently provide them with relief. Mm-hmm.
0: So we can add one more thing to both of our plates. How's that? That sounds... 1,013, 14 or I think at? I said
1: 312, so I think it's 313 okay, now. Okay, there we go. On that daunting note, let's uh, end things today. So... Thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. This has been a spectacular conversation, and uh, I look forward to potentially hearing from you in the future.
0: Great. Thanks for having me. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym A-A-O-M-P-T.